Recently, my son made a cool art project at homeschool of some bees on a honeycomb. I'll try to include an image of this when we upload this podcast to video. While his art may not be on par with Fra Angelico or Michelangelo, I'd argue it was better than half the stuff I would find in a modern art museum. Obviously, I'm biased. What society considers art has greatly changed over the past century, due in no small part to the church's diminished role as the patron of the arts par excellence, a position she held through the medieval period and up through the Baroque era. But the rise of both Protestantism and secular nation-states eroded the church's influence in the world. The result has been not only devastating consequences for the moral state of the world today, but it has also diminished her role as patron of the arts. Despite this, many modern popes have called upon artists to uphold this tradition of bringing beauty to the church, the liturgy, and the world. In his letter to artists delivered on Easter Sunday of 1999, Pope John Paul II claimed, In order to communicate the message entrusted to her by Christ, the church needs art. Art must make perceptible, and as far as possible, attractive, the world of the spirit, of the invisible, of God. And throughout the ages, many Catholic artists have answered this call of creating beauty. In this episode, Kevin and I will look back at a few of them. God bless America. God love you. I want these to be my first words of greeting to you. They will be the concluding words on each broadcast. I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president. You've embarked on a Catholic history trek. A few notes before we dive in. Scott and I see value in episodes that cover big topics. Sacred music, the liturgy, the Franciscans, about which entire books or multiple books could be and usually have been written. We figure for the vast majority of Catholics, or non-Catholics for that matter, who don't have the time or inclination to digest dissertations, our 20 or 30 minute treatments provide at least nice introductions. But that doesn't mean we don't recognize the limitations of the summary approach, one of which is selectivity. We know that we're not merely leaving out some of the story, we're leaving out more than we're putting in. I thought it was especially necessary to mention this for the current episode on Catholic artists, a topic whose potential subject matter is vast indeed. One way we did choose to reduce the size of the pool is to focus mostly, though not exclusively as you'll see, on painting. Not on sculpture or architecture or music or literature or other fields that might be included under the rubric of art. We also focused on artists whose lives and or work are closely associated with the Catholic Church in one way or another. So with all that throat clearing aside, let's talk about some Catholic artists. And if we're talking about Catholic artists, we might as well go back to the very beginning, all the way back to the apostles and the evangelists. St. Luke is credited as a companion of St. Paul, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, the writer of Acts of the Apostles, and a physician. But, was St. Luke also an artist? He was certainly an artist with words. His gospel is the longest of the four gospels, and his two New Testament books contain about as many words as St. Paul used in all 14 of his epistles combined. And Luke's accounts of events, like the presentation and the nativity, 
went on to become the subjects of many a work of art. But did this patron saint of painters actually create any paintings? In the Eastern Church, there is a strong tradition of Luke as an artist. They consider him to be the original iconographer and credit him for writing the first icon of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Nikephorus Zelanthopos, a 14th century church historian, calls him a painter, and a menology of the Byzantine Emperor Basil II from 980 also lists him as an artist. Meniology is essentially a hagiography and liturgical calendar used in the East. Theodorus Lector, a lector at the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople in the 6th century, also spoke of Luke's artwork. In one of his two works of church history, Theodorus tells of the Empress Eudoxia finding a Lucan picture of the Mother of God in Jerusalem, which the Empress then sent to Constantinople. This icon, which is traditionally attributed to St. Luke, is called a Hodigetria, which is a depiction of the Blessed Virgin Mary holding the Christ child. This name of Hodigetria comes from the Hodigon Monastery in Constantinople, which was built to house the icon. This icon remained there for 1,000 years before being lost to history. The general consensus is that it vanished during the fall of Constantinople in 1453, presumably having been removed to preserve it before the Turks captured the city. But this is not the only icon attributed to St. Luke. In fact, many such icons created in the Hodigetria style and often created with the encaustic technique that is, applying pigmented hot wax to wood, have been attributed to the evangelist, either claiming to be the original from Constantinople or another composition by St. Luke. With the prestige associated with possessing a second-class relic of St. Luke and having an image of the Blessed Virgin Mary, it's no wonder why many Marian icons began to be attributed to him, even if their authenticity was dubious at best. It's difficult to know how many, if any, of the artistic creations attributed to St. Luke were actually created by him. A few well-known examples claiming to be from Luke's hand include an ancient picture of the Virgin in the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome and the image of Our Lady Chestahova. The Chestahova image, which was covered in our episode on more Marian titles, episode 50, carries several traditional claims with it. Not only do some believe it was created by St. Luke, but that it was painted on a piece of wood from the table of the Last Supper, and that it was the original Hodagon removed from Constantinople to protect it from Turkish invasion. Another work of art attributed to St. Luke is the wooden statue of Our Lady of Montserrat, also covered in episode 50, although the authenticity of this claim doesn't seem to be as strong. Besides St. Luke, some of the earliest art associated with Christianity is frescoes and mosaics that appear in the catacombs underneath the city of Rome. A fresco is a painting done upon fresh plaster so that it is blended with the wall itself, while mosaics are images composed of fragments or pieces of material, usually colored glass or stone, secured to a surface with plaster or mortar. After the legalization of Christianity under Constantine and the subsequent explosion of church building, both became common decorative elements in churches. In the medieval period, a striking example of Christian art is the illuminated manuscripts produced by monks adding images to the scriptural text that they painstakingly copied. These manuscripts, says the Old Catholic Encyclopedia, 
are of incomparable beauty, being transcribed with extraordinary skill upon the finest of vellum and adorned with initial letters, calendars, and illustrations that are triumphs of artistic skill and marvels of ingenuity. Doubtless the most famous example is the Book of Kells, a transcription of the Gospels produced by Irish monks which dates to around 800 and is now on display at Trinity College Library in Dublin. What all this early art has in common is that it was anonymous. In virtually no instances do we know the individual identity of the artist who created these works of extraordinary antiquity and beauty. This is in part due to the obvious fact that documentation for most individuals from these periods is scanty. Not many personalities show up from the early centuries A.D., outside of emperors and kings, prominent bishops, and so forth. But it also stems in part from intentional humility. Illuminated manuscripts were often the product of more than one monk working over the course of many years. The task was part of their daily monastic labors performed at the service of God and the church. It was not an artistic expression of individuality. The monks did not sign their drawings and did not expect praise for them. As the medieval period started its transition to the Renaissance, this began to change. The earliest identifiable personalities in sacred art were Italians, and one of the best known was Giotto de Bondone, who died in 1337. Giotto's art graced many churches around central Italy. He's often associated with various of the many frescoes that adorn the Basilica of St. Francis and Assisi though the attribution of those frescoes is in dispute among art historians. There is consensus that he was the creator of the frescoes that cover the interior of the Scorvegni Chapel in Padua, which tell the story of the lives of Christ and the Blessed Virgin Mary. Giotto's frescoes are part of a UNESCO-designated World Heritage Site, whose description states that the complex's fresco style not only influenced Padua throughout the 14th century, but formed the inspirational basis for centuries of fresco work in the Italian Renaissance and beyond. We often think of knights as men donning plate armor, brandishing lances and swords, and charging into battle atop their powerful steeds, kind of like the Lego knights I had as a child and have here at my desk. But one can be honored with knighthood as a recognition of great deeds which took place off the battlefield as well. Throughout history, several of the popes conferred the dignity of knighthood upon men who promoted the interests of the church by advancing the Catholic faith and bravely safeguarding it through their writings, learning, and art. So, who knows? Maybe Pope Francis will even knight Kevin and myself for the work we do at this podcast. One such recognition was the Golden Militia, later named the Order of the Golden Spur, and later still, the Order of St. Sylvester, and later still, back to the Order of the Golden Spur. It was considered the oldest and most prestigious of such papal knighthoods to be conferred upon artists. Through the years, a handful of celebrated artists have been knighted into the Order of the Golden Spur, and I'll briefly offer a bio of a few of the Golden Spur's illustrious members. Giorgio Vasari was a painter and architect who is best known not for his artwork, but for his recording the biographies of other artists. The great painters and artists of the High Renaissance era, which he captured in his massive book, Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects. This book became the canon of the list of the great Renaissance artists, and his writing became the standard by which all future art histories would seek to imitate. Ventura Salambini was an artist from Siena who was knighted in the Order of the Golden Spur for his work in St. Peter's Basilica, and see episode 93 for the history of the Basilica. 
One of the last great masters of the Baroque era was Carlo Maratta. His first work, Nativity, was noticed by Pope Alexander VII, and after that, he essentially secured a solid stream of important commissions for altarpieces in Italian churches and painting palace ceilings. Maratta was deeply engaged in using his artistic skill to beautifully display the dogmas of the Catholic faith in the period of the Counter-Reformation, and he was knighted in 1704 by Pope Clement XI. In the 18th century, Bartolomeo Cavaceppi became a primary restorer of art for the Vatican. He mastered in restoring antique Roman sculptures, making casts, copies, and fakes of antiquities. For this, and for his contributions to the formation of the art museum of Pope Clement XIV, he was made a knight in the Golden Spur in 1770. The last one I'll mention, a modern and North American artist who was knighted was Guido Nincheri. Born in 1885 in Tuscany, Italy, he abandoned his family's textile business to enter art school. In 1914, he was en route to Argentina for a commission when he became stranded in Boston. With the outbreak of World War I, there were fears of potential German submarine attacks, making passenger travel a risky venture. So, on the advice of a friend, he left New England for French-speaking Montreal. There, he became a renowned stained-glass window artist, decorating more than 100 churches in eastern Canada and New England until his death in 1973. In 1933, Pope Pius IX called him the church's greatest artist of religious themes and honored him with knighthood. And not only were certain artists knighted, but some of them had the distinct privilege of having ninja turtles named after them, of which I think Kevin may be mentioning one or two. I am in fact going to talk about one of Ninja Turtles, or at least the artist after whom he's named. But first we need to backtrack from where Sir Scott of Troy ended in the 20th century, back to the Renaissance. I think many art historians would agree that the apex of Catholic art was the Renaissance, and perhaps more specifically, the Italian Renaissance. And this is due to the confluence of two facts. Painting itself, reaching an impressive level of sophistication in that period, and the continuing domination of European culture, Italian culture especially, by the Catholic Church, often quite directly by the patronage of artists and art projects by popes, cardinals, and other prelates of the Church. So the period saw some of the most talented artists in history applying their talents to Christian themes and or working for Christian institutions. In the case of Fra Angelico, the Catholic character is obvious. Fra, Italian for brother, points to the fact that Guideo di Pietro, a.k.a. Giovanni di Fisoli, a.k.a. Fra Angelico, was a Dominican friar. Like his Franciscan-associated earlier counterpart Giotto, we don't know a great deal about the Dominican-associated Fra Angelico's early years, including the date of his birth. By the 1420s, for sure, and possibly earlier, he had joined the Dominicans. He painted frescoes in the Order's churches in Cortona, Fisoli, and most famously in the Renaissance hotbed of Florence, at the Friary of San Marco, where the notorious Savonarola would spend time a few decades later. There he completed two of his best-known works, the Annunciation and the San Marco Altarpiece. Beginning in the 1440s, he was recruited by various popes for commissions in Rome. He died at the Dominican convent in Rome in 1455. His epitaph includes the line, The deeds that count on earth are not the ones that count in heaven. His deeds on earth were impressive, but Fra Angelico's life and work reflected the fact that his focus was on heaven. 
1982, Pope John Paul II beatified the 15th century friar painter, and in 1984, the same pope designated him a patron saint of artists, in which occupation he joined a few others, including the aforementioned St. Luke. Less saintly of life, but no less impressive artistically, was an artist born 20 years after Fra Angelico died. Michelangelo de Lodovico Buonarroti Simoni was raised in Florence, where he apprenticed with another great Italian master, Ghirlandaio. Michelangelo quickly gained notoriety as both a painter and a sculptor. At age 21, he was invited to Rome by a cardinal who had been impressed with his work. Another cardinal shortly thereafter commissioned the marble sculpture that would be one of Michelangelo's best-known works, the Madonna della Pietà, which ended up in the new St. Peter's Basilica. For more on that, including Michelangelo's role as architect, check out our recent episode on St. Peter's. Back in Florence for a few years, Michelangelo finished another famous piece, his Sculpture of David. Pope Julius II called him back to Rome in 1505 to design that pope's tomb, but more famous was the other job Julius hired him for, the sealing of the Sistine Chapel. The relationship between Michelangelo and Pope Julius, two strong personalities, was famously turbulent, but also famously fruitful for religious art. Irving Stone wrote a biographical novel about the pair in 1961 titled The Agony and the Ecstasy, on which a 1965 film was based. It starred Charlton Heston as the artist and Rex Harrison as the Pope. Michelangelo would return to the Sistine Chapel in the 1530s under Pope Clement VII to produce the fresco The Last Judgment on the wall behind the altar. He died in Rome at the age of 88 in 1564. Michelangelo's personal life may not have been irreproachable. There's never been any movement to canonize him as far as I'm aware. But there has also never been any question that he was a devout Catholic throughout his life, dying in the good graces of the Church. His piety is evident in his poetry, among which the following lines can be found, written as he grew old. So now I recognize how laden with error was the affectionate fantasy that made art an idol and sovereign to me, like all things men want in spite of their best interests. Neither painting nor sculpture will be able any longer to calm my soul, now turned toward that divine love that opened his arms on the cross to take us in. Not every great artist of the Renaissance was Italian. In 1541, while Michelangelo was busy in Rome, Domenicos Theotokopoulos was born on the island of Crete. He would become known in Italy and Spain as El Greco, the Greek. Actually, Crete was at the time part of the Republic of Venice, and the young Domenicos went to Venice to study art, so Italy figures pretty heavily in the life of El Greco as well. El Greco spent time in Rome in the 1570s, where he is on the record as a dues-paying member of the Guild of St. Luke. There he became acquainted with Spanish church officials who evidently persuaded him to transfer his talents to Spain. There he would spend the rest of his life, mostly in the ecclesiastical capital of the empire, Toledo. There's some debate about El Greco's religious background, but the predominant view seems to be that he was born into a Greek Orthodox family, which makes sense considering the culture of Crete but he became Catholic sometime afterward and was certainly a, quote, devout Catholic, as he described himself, during his Spanish period. Though he failed to earn the favor of King Philip II, there were plenty of other patrons willing to sponsor his art. He created myriad works of art for churchmen, including his first commission, an altarpiece for a Cistercian monastery in Toledo. For more about the Cistercians, see our episode number 67. It was during the Spanish period that El Greco began exhibiting his distinctive style, drawing on but different from the Venetian school in which he was trained. 
Two El Greco features that are noticeable even to an untrained artistic eye like mine are vibrant, unusual color schemes and elongated human figures. From 1590 until his death in 1614, in the words of one summary, his painterly output was prodigious. Most of this art was religious in character. The Holy Family, the Agony in the Garden, Saints Dominic, Mary Magdalene, Jerome, and Peter, some 25 versions of St. Francis. Much of his work was done for monasteries and churches. While obviously popular and successful in his day, El Greco was not considered influential in the centuries following until the 20th. At that point, another Spanish painter, Pablo Picasso, revived interest in El Greco and intensified the earlier artist's experimentation with color and form. Having returned to the 20th century, we'll go back to Scott now for a Catholic artist from that time frame. Berta Hummel was born in southern Bavaria in 1909. Always interested in drawing, she applied to the Academy of Applied Art in Munich. Despite making no preparations and being one of the youngest applicants, she earned the second-best entrance score and was admitted to the Academy. As an interesting aside, Adolf Hitler applied to a similar academy, the Academy of Fine Art in Vienna. Despite the Vienna Academy's 75% acceptance rate, he was rejected twice. Although he continued painting until World War I and ultimately gave up his dreams of being an artist for dreams of being a global dictator. While at the Munich Academy, Berta befriended a pair of Franciscan sisters who were also studying art there. And after graduating in 1931 at the top of her class, she followed a religious calling and joined them as a postulant in the Order of St. Francis. At the Zeeson Convent, Berta Hummel became Sister Maria Innocenta, OSF. The order permitted her to continue her artwork, and in 1933, they displayed an exhibition of her sketches in a nearby town. Ars Sacra Joseph Mueller Verlag, a publishing company in Munich, was impressed with her work and requested additional sketches, which they published as postcards and other forms of souvenir pictures. Also in 1933, Franz Goebel, the co-owner of the Goebel Porcelain Fabric Company, which made small porcelain statues, came across some of these postcards with her sketches. Franz Goebel decided these figures on the postcards would make wonderful line of figurines. And a little over a year later, the Goebel Porcelain Fabric Company began to produce Hummel figurines. These porcelain figurines have been labeled under the artistic name of M.I. Hummel, with the M.I. being an abbreviation of her religious name, Sister Maria Innocenta. It's been said in 1937, the year she took her final vows into the Order of St. Francis, her artwork drew contempt from the Nazi party, particularly from Hitler himself. The image which drew their ire was one titled The Volunteers, which features two small children marching in step, one carrying a rifle with the other beating a drum. In the lead-up to World War II, the Nazis were involved in obviously much more than attacking a religious sister's artwork. In 1938, they also organized demonstrations against Bishop Johannes Baptista Sproul of Rottenburg and then expelled him from his see for his refusal to support Germany's annexation of Austria. Instead of abandoning his flock, which included the Sisters of the Zeeson Convent, the exiled bishop took to hiding out in convents and cloisters within his diocese. While he was staying at the convent of Krumbad, Sister Maria Innocenta had a figurine titled Blessed Child made as a gift for him, 
and another of her figurines titled Is It Raining is based on a drawing of the bishop as a child on his way to school. In October of 1940, the Nazis confiscated the convent of Zissen. They gave the sisters 10 days to evacuate, permitting only a small portion of them to remain in the few rooms the Nazis did not want to take. Sister Maria Innocenta was among the 250 sisters forced to abandon the convent. She initially moved to her parents' home, but missing the silence and sanctity of the convent, she returned to share in the cramped poverty and hardships of the sisters who remained. She continued to work on her art in a dank basement room, which served as both her cell and studio. But those less-than-ideal conditions helped contribute to a decline in her health, and in 1844, she contracted tuberculosis. For the next two years, she bounced back and forth between hospital and convent, and ultimately died of tuberculosis at the convent in 1946, at the young age of 37. Following the end of the war in Europe, some of the American soldiers stationed in Germany began to discover and buy these humble figurines and send them back to their families in America as souvenirs. This eventually helped spawn interest in the figurines overseas, which later became a collector's market, with various Hummel figurines selling for thousands of dollars at auction. Sister Maria Innocenta never saw this explosion of popularity of her figurines as she died only one and a half years after VE Day. We'll wrap up this summary with two other modern artists, these two Americans. George Peter Alexander Healy was born in Boston in 1813, the son of Irish immigrants. Every source that mentions his religion says that he was Catholic, but I could find very little beyond that regarding his faith. His 220-page autobiography published in 1894 hardly mentions Catholicism. He married an English woman in an Anglican church in London, and he's buried in a Catholic cemetery near Chicago. So my surmise is that he was a baptized Catholic who was not very devout, but that's just a guess. Healy was possibly the most famous portraitist in the United States in the 19th century. If you perused very many American history books, you've probably seen his paintings, whether you realized it or not. Many of them can be seen in art museums and even in the White House. A partial list of prominent figures who sat for his portraits would include presidents Millard Fillmore, John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, Franklin Pierce, James Polk, James Buchanan, John Tyler, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, and Chester Arthur. Foreign dignitaries Otto von Bismarck, Adolf Thiers, Leo Gambetta, the King and Queen of Romania, and Pope Pius IX. There are two Catholicism-related stories in his autobiography that are both worth telling. The first took place at the very beginning of Healy's artistic career, when he was an unknown teenager. A friend, who happened to be the daughter of the eminent portrait painter Gilbert Stewart, lent him a copy of a painting of the face of Christ, Ecce Homo, by the Italian artist Guido Reni. Healy reproduced it, and, quote, such as it was, I carried the picture to a good-natured bookseller who consented to put it in his shop window. Here's the rest of the story in Healy's own words. A Catholic priest from the country happened to pass that way and stopped to look at the picture. Catholic priests are not rich now. In those days, they were terribly poor. After hesitating, he went in and asked whether that picture was for sale. My friend the bookseller must have had a twinkle in his eye as he answered that doubtless the artist would consent to part with his work for a consideration. I am not rich, said the priest. All I could scrape together would be $10. I will speak to the artist and give you an answer tomorrow. And on the morrow, the priest carried away the Ecce Homo and the artist pocketed the $10. I do not know which was the happier of the two, but I rather fancy it was the boy painter.
Thirty years later, the now-renowned Healy happened to meet that very priest, now elderly. The priest, whom Healy considered his first patron, said to him, Your picture still hangs in my little church. Who knows? It perhaps brought down blessings on your head. I have always felt that I had something to do with your success in life. The second story is Healy's account of his portrait of Pope Pius IX, which he painted while he was in Rome in 1871. He was a pretty good sitter, Healy remembered, but somewhat restless and curious as to what his painter was about. On one occasion, he arose from his seat to look over my shoulder. I exclaimed, perhaps a little abruptly, I beg your holiness to sit down. The Pope laughed and said, I am accustomed to give orders not to receive them. But you see, Mr. Healy, that I also know how to obey, and submissively went back to his chair. Healy died in 1894 and is buried in Calvary Cemetery in Evanston, Illinois. Another American Catholic artist, John Lafarge, was nearly contemporary with Healy, though the two focused on different kinds of productions. Lafarge was born in 1835 in New York City to wealthy French parents, his father an immigrant, his mother the daughter of immigrants. He was educated at two Catholic colleges, St. John's in New York, which is now Fordham University, and Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland. At St. John's, he became fascinated with medieval history and culture, which combined with a trip to France and Belgium, stimulated a desire to create fine art in a medieval key. He trained for a time in the Paris studio of painter Thomas Couture. In the late 1850s, he opened his own studio in New York. Beginning as a book illustrator, he moved into mural painting. His earliest commissions were for Episcopalian churches in New York. He also became proficient in stained glass. This led him at one point into a patent dispute with the famous glass artist Louis Tiffany. His windows and murals are located in many churches and government buildings across the nation, including the Minnesota State Capitol and the City of Baltimore Courthouse. Most of his work appears in non-Catholic churches, though a set of Lafarge windows can be found in the chapel on the campus of Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island. He lived in Rhode Island for most of his life after moving there from New York in 1859, though he was frequently away from home on business and art sightseeing excursions. It was in Rhode Island that he met and married his wife, Margaret. A non-Catholic when they met, Margaret was instructed in the faith by Lafarge's friend, Father Isaac Hecker, the founder of the religious order known as the Paulists. Lafarge sketched a charcoal portrait of Hecker, which is now in the possession of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. John and Margaret would have eight children, the youngest of whom was named after his father. John LaForge Jr. became a Jesuit priest and an important figure in mid-20th century Catholic interracialism, you might say a branch of the civil rights movement. John LaForge Sr. died in Providence, Rhode Island in 1910. In November 2009, Pope Benedict XVI delivered an address to artists in the Sistine Chapel surrounded by Michelangelo's art. Invoking the Last Judgment, which loomed behind him as he spoke, the Pope said, Michelangelo presents to our gaze the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of history, and he invites us to walk the path of life with joy, courage, and hope. The dramatic beauty of Michelangelo's painting, its colors and forms, becomes a proclamation of hope, an invitation to raise our gaze to the ultimate horizon. In the same speech, Benedict spoke of the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty, suggesting that authentic beauty is a path to God. Invoking the words of one of his predecessors, Paul VI, he called artists the custodians of beauty in the world, and ended by exhorting them, Let the beauty that you express by your God-given talents always direct the hearts of others to glorify the Creator, the source of all that is good. I hope that listening to this podcast has been a feast to your ears, but I hope even more that you will have the opportunity to feast your eyes 
on the handiwork of some of the custodians of beauty who have, over the past 2,000 years, left us such a stupendous treasury of Catholic art. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Sicuterat in principio et nunc et semper, et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com. <laughs>